You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. Gilgamesh seated himself on his throne. In the street of Uruk the city, the crowd was sitting before him. Thus, Gilgamesh spoke to the elders of Uruk the city. Hear me, O elders of Uruk the city. I would tread the path to ferocious Humbaba. I would see the god of whom men talk, whose name the lands do constantly repeat. I will conquer him in the forest of cedar. Let the land learn Uruk's offshoot is mighty. Let me start out. I will cut down the cedar. I will establish forever a name eternal. That is a passage from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Sumerian myth from the 3rd and 2nd millennium BC. The story takes place in ancient Mesopotamia, and it's the earliest piece of literature to have been recovered anywhere. I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with our show? It turns out that trees play a central role in this tale. Will Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk, succeed in killing Humbaba, the god's fearsome guardian of the sacred forest, and will he cut down all the cedars? If he does, will he be a hero, or will there be tragic consequences to pay? What will be left, and what will it mean for his kingdom? These themes can be found in John Perlin's newly republished book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. Trees and the abundance of wood have been an overlooked driver of the rise and the fall of the world's great societies. Perlin highlights the Gilgamesh story. In fact, his title, A Forest Journey, is from the epic. But his fascinating, wide-ranging book investigates the patterns of wood consumption and depletion across the globe and throughout history. Forest conservation has great implications for the fight against the climate crisis, and therefore, our survival. So why are we so bad at it? John Perlin is here with me today to talk about his book, about trees and civilization, and the story of Gilgamesh and the Cedar Forest. I'm Doug Still, and welcome to This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree John Perlin is an intellectual, author, and historian who currently serves as visiting scholar within the Department of Physics at the University of California at Santa Barbara, where he lives. He's written three books on the history of solar energy, and with David Kennard, he co-wrote the documentary The Power of the Sun. He also wrote A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. It was first printed in 1989 when it won all sorts of accolades. It was chosen as Book of the Year by the Chicago Geographical Society and a classic in science and world history by the Harvard University Press. The very impressive new edition is available now through Patagonia Press, soon to be available everywhere. But at the start of our interview, and before I could even welcome John to the show, he was off and running. Keeping up with the workings of John's mind is like holding back the great deluge. What happened was after 1989, so much has happened in forestry and so many new discoveries that um, Patagonia let me run, as I was telling you earlier, 
uh, with all this new information that I was gathering. And it began with oh, um, 385 million years ago with the first true tree. This is what I call this old tree, right? Yeah, Archaeopteris. Archaeopteris, which because uh, we had only, uh, there was one landmass, right? There was only one landmass called Gwandaland. It easily spread uh, throughout the entire uh, terrestrial world. And it initiate or helped initiate the great drawdown of CO2 and the great increase in oxygen, which made our uh, a living Earth for, for large cre- terrestrial creatures. Uh, so with, with wherever you find Archaeopteris, you usually find uh, fossils of the first four-legged creatures. John and I met on a previous call when we must have talked for over an hour. That's when he first told me about Archaeopteris, the first real tree, and now the topic of the first chapter in the revised edition of his book. He excitedly showed me fossils of Archaeopteris from Pennsylvania that he had in his collection. They were really cool. Well, I appreciated seeing the fossils of Archaeopteris that you sent me via email. It was amazing. Like I, I spent like two weeks uh, every day digging. And um, the reason why that site is so good is because the uh, Department of Transportation of Pennsylvania had uh, widened the road, you know. And so they made a cut. Uh, it turned out into to this ancient lake. And and all this uh, Archaeopteris material and ciliary animals, like like fish, um, deposited slowly in the um, bottom of the lake. What what I really discovered is you have these two events juxtaposed to each other that really tells us about the value of trees. Is the one is the Archaeopteris story? Yes, and then the end permanent extinction. Um, where the two factors of the extinction when we almost lost life, both on land and sea, was um, increased CO2 and uh, increased deforestation are the two factors that caused this uh, catastrophic event. Before getting to the meat of his book, I had a random question. I know from our previous conversations and just what you've been telling me now that you've you've traveled the world to bolster your research. And when I was searching online, I saw a quick mention about a surfboard in one of your bios. All right. I brought the first surfboard to Israel. <laughs> in addition to reading ancient texts and drawing connections between world cultures through the history of science, are you also a surfer? Yeah, uh, you have to understand, like, I grew up in Southern California. And, uh, you know, when I was 11, I uh, did my first surfing in Baja. And um, then uh, one of the perks of being at the University of California, Santa Barbara, as an undergraduate, is they have some of the best waves in the world. Yeah, you're living the life. Uh, but but also uh, learning uh, how to write science at the same time. Well, I greatly enjoyed reading the book. Its content has a huge reach, combined with the fact um, that parts of your book are about ancient history and also about forestry. Well, I just gobbled it up. Well, forestry played such a role. I mean, um, you know, the only reason 
Greece initially was interested in Rome, for example, was because of its vast woodlands, which actually caused my Italian friend of mine to just laugh for about like an hour because there aren't any trees where um, the big forests um, in Rome that fed the uh, war machines of Greece, for example. The book's basically a comprehensive history of how forests have shaped human life and civilization, uh, specifically the exploitation of forests. Oh, well, let me interrupt you. Also, and this was the for me the aha moment, was few people realize the role forests play in past civilizations as far as their development, because you would have no metal ages if there wasn't wood fuel. And even in the Neanderthal, when they developed wood handles uh, for their tools, was a great revolution. So, so no civilization. And, and then think of the ships that, you know, that um, most of the cargo to this day is transported in uh, until, what was it, 1861, 1862, with the Battle of the Monitor and the Merrimack. Uh, you know, ships were all wood. Well, your methods of examination... Um, are a combination of scientific studies, art, oral histories, and sometimes millennia-old literature. And that's what's going to bring us to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is one of uh-huh. my prime interests here. But we're going we're to get back to that. But okay. I'd like to take a look at what I thought were the three key ideas okay. in your book. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> okay. Um, first off, that as you were just saying, trees have been a principal fuel and building material for just about every society over the millennia. And we kind of knew this, but your point is that it's an underappreciated fact. Correct. Well, 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 nobody, you, you know, you know, sometimes what's most oh, recognizable people don't see. In fact, I went to this, uh, I gave uh, several lectures at Oxford on a forest journey. And um, I went to the Ashmolean Museum, which is their, you know, uh, gem, the gem of, of Oxford. And they showed all the artifacts that could have never happened without wood, but they never show the wood or, or, it's, or it's derivative charcoal. Right. But what I'd like to emphasize, it, it, was, it was just, you know, looking at me, right, staring at me. And I didn't understand why nobody had gone into it. It's one of the basics of society. The, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we would have. I mean, just think, just think. Uh, you know, back in uh, Greece, say you could not transport anything without amphorae, and you couldn't have amphorae without heat, and you couldn't have heat without wood fire. Homes, public buildings, even if the buildings were marble or stone or brick, the structures, scaffolding had they needed wood. Well, not only that, but just think on that point right there. You couldn't have, like, I was thinking of that the other day, like an aqueduct is made primarily of uh, stone, but you had to... Um, deform it. You had to paste the, I guess you'd call it, you had to put the stones together, and you required, like, a oh, uh, lime, and that lime required to be removed from limestone, which required a tremendous amount of uh, wood fuel. Yeah, and the list goes on and on. To create bronze or to create weapons, you needed heat, glass, pottery, ships. I think you made this point, even currency, to make coins. 
Yeah. Yeah. The, for example, the mines of Lorien, which financed the uh, building of the ships that defeated the um, uh, uh, Persians at Salome. If not, if they didn't have like a uh, uh, wood fuel to uh, turn the silver ore into silver, uh, we would all be speaking uh, Persian. After the break, more from John Perlin on how forests shaped human civilization. You're listening to This Old Tree. Find the table box of cedar. Release its clasp of bronze. Lift the lid of its secret. Pick up the tablet of lapis lazuli and read out the travails of Gilgamesh. All that he went through. Gilgamesh so tall, magnificent, and terrible, who opened passes in the mountains, dug wells on the slopes of the uplands, and crossed the ocean, the wide sea to the sunrise. Which brings us to idea number two. Okay. Glad to do that. (laughs) As civilizations grow, forests recede. Well, yeah, that's straight out of the the Bible. I mean, uh, it's uh, in Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about that, oh, Sargon the Great has been killed. And so now the, uh, and and Isaiah takes the, uh, oh, you might say the, personification of a uh, of a tree and says how happy he is and his fellow trees are uh, that you don't have civilization coming in i mean this is uh, you know i'm just showing you things i never knew before did you know that because of the great forest in the middle east at that time there was a plethora of say uh, elephants and so you have all these uh, what are they called style uh, bragging about how many elephants I killed, and, and then, but what what really uh, sealed the deal was they found like bones of ancient elephants in like northern Syria, and their habitat was eliminated. Yeah, so that's another part. You know, just add to it is when you eliminate the forest, you eliminate the habitat. You quoted Ovid when we were talking about forest receding with civilization. Do you remember that quote? Oh, yeah. He said that basically, oh, um, the pine, you know, sails sails, uh, away when uh, we reach the Iron Age. (laughs) I have it here. Even the pine tree stood on its own very hills. But when civilization took over, the mountain oak, the pine were felled. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, also Lucretius uh, says the same thing, where he talks about how he watches almost the trees running up the hills as they, you know, remove uh, them for, and this is an issue too, uh, for vineyards. Cicero was really, uh, you know, really angry because he said, I would rather see no drink in Rome than to lose all our great oaks for the um, grapevines. Which brings me to point number three. Okay. As forests recede, civilizations recede, or at least they enter a stage of crisis. Or they enter, or I I would like to add too, to be accurate, um, we find, so sometimes like, like England and like the United States, they made the leap from wood to uh, fossil fuels, but, you know, 
we know that does not bode well either. Yeah. So if there's a crisis, then whatever society we're talking about, you know, has some options, I guess, either territorial expansion. The Romans were a really good example of that and the movement into Gaul and Germania. Well, just 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 to add, uh, remember the Greeks actually did the first where they moved into Sicily for, right. for the wood. Magna Graeca. Or, so that would be, depending on how you term it, expansion or movement of, of peoples, or at least a portion of them. Just to interrupt you, um, also the whole uh, movement from England to um, North America. Yeah, absolutely. Or it could be collapse. Some societies just didn't make it and they were absorbed by a neighbor. Oh, oh, totally, totally correct. Like that's what happened with uh, Greece as Greece became dependent on, you know, um, wood from uh, from Sicily and Rome. Well, I know it's all very complicated and there are many different forces and climate change, food, um, the need for silver or, or gold or slaves or whatever. But the wood, the forest, is an underappreciated reason for explanation. You're sort of like my shill because, um, you know, like uh, like you take the slave trade. Um, I went to a conference on oh, iron and uh, slavery at UCLA. And I learned from um, there that um, Africa, unlike what we learn in the history books, was not dark Africa. Uh, they actually developed steel a thousand years before um, the Europeans. And they, you know, to produce iron really deforests. And so what happened was about the 16th century uh, or 17th century, uh, they, you know, iron meant power, right? Weapons. You had iron weapon, you could like really kick ass, right? Right. And then you can go get somebody else's forest. Exactly. So, so, so they started running out of uh, fuel, meaning trees in, in parts of Africa. And so they just, they started trading people for iron from uh, Sweden. Yeah, very sad. Interesting you bring up Africa um, as we're talking about the pattern, right, of civilization growth, deforestation, scarcity, and then displacement or movement. There was, an, uh, there was a story on NPR yesterday. I don't know if you heard about it, but it was about the forests of Liberia. The name of the, the title of the story was "How Forest Guards in Liberia Protect the Sacred Rainforest." It mainly was focusing on, you know, how important the, the forests are and sacred to many people. But Global Forest Watch determined that there's a loss of a hundred thousand hectares of natural forest in West Africa due to de deforestation, and so they've set up guards, and these people are heroes. Actually, what what happened is this: how is how, like large powers, for example, today, uh, export deforestation. Uh, the Chinese, for example, um, and this is Liberia too. It's, it's, I, I like you really you're really a good host because you bring up issues that I really want to talk about. Is the Chinese would have boats out in the ocean by Liberia? They would. Um, you've heard of the dictator Taylor. He was he was he was no. the real monster in Liberia. This is about twenty years ago, and the Chinese would um, trade arms right to the dictator uh, for uh, trees. 
So this is how the Chinese have been able to reforest their country by exporting deforestation uh, in other countries. Well, that's what the British did, and that's what we did in New England. We that that's why what, what makes uh, a forest journey universal is because the story continues. Gilgamesh, the perfect in strength, suckling of the august wild cow the goddess Ninsun, who scoured the world ever searching for life and reached through sheer force Utnapishti, the distant, who restored the cult centers destroyed in the deluge and set in place for the people the rights of the cosmos. Who is there can rival his kingly standing and say, like Gilgamesh, it is I, I'm the king. And, and, and your mention of the value of forests, forests are even more valuable today than they were in times past because, and this is what really makes the book new, is there's a whole section on current uh, discoveries from, say, the 1990s when the book was published to current. And it turns out that forests um Okay, people believed for the longest time that ocean evaporation was the way uh, we got rain. But now new research shows that about 40% of the precipitation in the world comes from the forest through trans- okay. evapotranspiration. Mm-hmm. And also that forests, like, uh, they serve as relays of rain to, like, rivers, uh, to very far off places. For example, the rainforest in the Congo um, contribute about 40% of the water to the Nile. Interesting. So, so, so now, and also, um, we learned, and, and this is a part that really fascinates me is, uh, since 1994, we're really learning the uh, value of roots and the role they play in carbon sequestration. Uh, for example, we, we knew that they were valuable in, uh, creating soil. Describe then the processes when, the the forest is cleared until the 1990s people had anthropomorphized old growth in that they thought that well when a tree gets older right it's like you know someone in a um skilled nursing home while that has proven to be totally false and they are the best sequesters of carbon and and that destroyed the rationale for like uh oh um timber harvest right you know, like treating them like crops. Right. Like the younger trees grow faster, so they're sequestering more carbon. That's not true. Just to be clear, sustainable forestry practices have come a long way in the last half century. We know how to do it, and it's practiced in some parts of the world. And yet, from the year 2000 to 2020, there was a 2.4% net loss in tree cover globally, according to Global Forest Watch. The total area of humid primary forest decreased by 6.7% in about the same period. Also through soil erosion, right? The carbon that's just in the soil. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, that, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought up that point because you can have as much, I think it's in the boreal forest, like 60 or 70% of the uh, carbon is in the soil. Right. So you're not just removing the carbon that's embodied in the trees. 
it's the whole system. Well, actually, uh, that's the tragedy of uh, the United States, for example, is uh, in the 19th century, removing all the trees that you know, were from the Atlantic to the, almost the Mississippi. It was one great forest. And once we removed those, that great forest, then we went into deep plowing. And so we not only destroyed the sequesters, but we added the carbon uh, from the, um, uh, you know, from the deeps, from, from the soil. I've come into close contact with it on Cape Cod. I lead forest walks in the summer in the outer Cape. And they're interesting forests. They're, they're not as diverse as they once were. It was completely cleared um, in the 17th and 8th to mid 19th century. Um, they needed fuel for their homes and for to clear for agriculture. And then Thoreau describes it as just this wasteland. And he is in Truro and he can see all the way to Provincetown, not a tree in sight. Wow. And so it's hard to imagine when we're walking through the forest that it, that it was like that. But if you, you can see the signs, because there's mainly pitch pines and black oak and white oak, but it's not the diversity that, that they used to have. And so there it is. It's hard for us to imagine now the forest that we have in New England that it was completely cleared. Gilgamesh was his name from the day he was born. Two-thirds of him God, but one-third human. Four cubits was the width of his chest. A triple cubit was his foot, half a rod his leg. Six cubits was his stride. Three cubits long, the curls at his cheeks. Well, let's get to Gilgamesh. Okay, let's that's get to Gilgamesh. Okay. I love Gilgamesh. That's, you know, you know, that's how I got the title of the book. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably your key case study, if you want to call it that. Oh, yeah. Um, because it's the earliest known piece of literature. First epic. And you take the title of the book from, was it the Tablet 5? Right. I, I, owe, I, owe, I owe the author uh, of Gilgamesh what a uh, use fee. <laughs> <laughs> um, whose translation do you use? The great, uh, the greatest scholar of uh, cuneiform, uh, Andrew George. The Epic of Gilgamesh was written on clay tablets that were only discovered in the mid-19th century. The script is called cuneiform, a writing system of markings in the clay used for a number of languages in the ancient world. Tablets with different iterations of Gilgamesh were found in the Sumerian language, but more completely in Akkadian, written by Babylonian scribes around 1800 BC. After their discovery, scholars deciphered the script, but the tablets were in hundreds of fragments found in different locations. Through the decades, they were pieced together, but there are still missing parts. Old as it may be, the tale is relatively new to modern appreciation. And who were the Sumerians, and how did Uruk fit into their... Uh... Well, Uruk was the first Sumerian uh, stronghold. Uh, it's hard to imagine... But uh, at that time, and that was about five, six thousand years ago, Uruk was the first like town among a wilderness. I mean, it's hard to think of you know Iran and Iraq being wilderness. And that's because uh, we've removed all the trees. Uh, but uh, at that time, oh, there were gazelles, there were elephants. You know, it was just 
lush with monkeys, you know, just, just, it was a paradise. So the forest wasn't just in the mountains originally, it was also right. in the plains. Right, but not, but the big trees uh, were in the mountains. Actually, what happened, and, and this is the interesting thing about Gilgamesh, the story is originally where Gilgamesh went was in uh, um, uh, eastern Iran, but other uh, episodes of you know, that other monarchs used to compare themselves to Gilgamesh were in like oh, um, south central Turkey in the mountains. And then uh, after a couple thousand or two thousand years, it became uh, the Cedars of Lebanon. Yes. So, so it's really interesting. You can actually follow the deforestation by the various uh, iterations of the epic. So the cedar forest, which consisted of cedars of Lebanon, right, extended into Iraq, over to Iran. Right, in the mountains. In the mountains. So it's more of a mountain species. Right. And it's sort of like, you know, the same story once again, like, like, like the Americans in North America. The forests were a magnet to uh, power. Describe a cedar of Lebanon. Why was it valuable to them? Because... It's it's a you know it's a very power, a very very big tree. It has lots of uh, lumber. So so you know they were big you know like like the big trees of California. They were the big trees. You know they were um, every uh, they were a builder's like uh, dream, right? And also also they had this odor that was uh, very was you know considered aroma for the gods. Now, in the story of Gilgamesh, and I imagine in Sumerian society, these cedar forests were sacred. Well, that's that's the whole story is, and that makes the um, creates the story is they were off limits to humans, and they were sacred. The gods made heaven on earth in the forests. It was like paradise, and that's where we get Genesis. In fact, in Genesis. Adam's first requirement from God is to, I, I can even say it in Hebrew, but I'll say it in English, is to guard the trees. Please say it in Hebrew. Okay. Um, shomer ha-etzim, which means, it almost means like defend, because in Israel, uh, shomer is used militarily. Oh, and it brought the waters. They realized that it was the uh, mother of the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates, which made uh, the um, areas very rich. And what do we say? The Fertile Crescent, right? That's right. Okay. Without the trees, they realized at a very early time that uh, I just read a paper on this, actually. Um, the um, trees were the... Um, father or no the mother were the mother of the waters that made civilization happen there you have a good quote i wanted to read it go ahead go for it the gods according to the epic had chosen this primeval forest as their home heaven was on earth just as it was in the garden of eden there was always shade to temper the scorching sun of summer the scent of cedar and juniper sweetened the surrounding air Winds made celestial music as they played upon branches and leaves. Rivulets turned into brooks, brooks turned into streams, and then roared as great rivers into the Persian Sea. 
The joy of living in the forest anchored the gods to the earth. Yeah, that's straight out of, you know, I was just uh, paraphrasing uh, Gilgamesh. Where And this was the really, you asked me, well, what is, uh, how good a guy is, uh, oh, Andrew George? Well, uh, actually in 2014, he published a, a new tablet uh, with a um, Iraqian colleague. It's called the uh, Ecological Gilgamesh. Where, where the, the, uh, in that uh, text that was found, like uh, uh, the first part of the um, 21st century, um, and then translated, showed a real ecological um, sensitivity, where it talks about uh, the you know the the, the monkeys, the, the insects, you know, and the smell of the resin. You know, it's just like heaven. Yeah. His cheeks were bearded, dark as gleaming lapis lazuli. The locks of his hair grew thickly as barley. When he grew tall, his beauty was consummate. Most handsome was he by the standards of men. Who was Gilgamesh? Gilgamesh was actually, they believe, a um, one of the founding kings of uh, that area, of Uruk. It's like it, it, history begins at Uruk. And Gilgamesh begins at, uh, at Uruk. How would you describe Gilgamesh's personality? Gilgamesh represented all the hubris of civilization. In Uruk, the sheepfold, he walks back and forth like a wild bull lording it, head held aloft. He has no equal when his weapons are brandished. His companions are kept on their feet by their contests. The young men of Uruk, he harries without warrant. Gilgamesh lets no son go free to his father. By day and by night, his tyranny grows harsher. Gilgamesh, the guide of the teeming people. The macho-ness, the, uh, uh, the alpha force. Oh yeah, well, actually, actually, there are papers, scholarly papers on that, on the alpha force, you know, <laughs> you know, on the on the macho ness of uh, not only, uh, and he represented an ethos of the rulers for thousands of years, including today. So he's the protagonist, and he has a companion, Enkidu. Okay, and Enkidu, he was put on the earth by the gods to counter. Gilgamesh's like schemes. The goddess Aruru, she washed her hands, took a pinch of clay, threw it down in the wild. In the wild, she created Enkidu, the hero, offspring of silence, knit strong by Ninurta. All his body is matted with hair. He bears long tresses like those of a woman. The locks of his hair grow thickly as barley. He knows not a people, nor even a country. Coated in hair like the god of the animals, with gazelles he grazes on grasses, joining the throng with the herd at the waterhole, his heart delighting with beasts in the water. He's the alter ego. Alter ego, right. And uh, he's um, real hairy. He has hoofs, but he has a human, uh, you know, brain. But what happens, and I don't, I mean, it's, it's really X-rated, 
is the way Gilgamesh was able to uh, co-opt and could do was he sent the loveliest of women. A harlot. Uh, out to uh, where Gilgamesh, where Enkidu is playing with his animal friends. And there's a sexy scene. Oh, uh, you cannot believe it. I mean, I would be banished from this podcast if I really, <laughs> in the writings, I mean, he do, she does everything for him. And he's just like seven days of total pleasure, right? Uh, and But suddenly what happens is he sees that his um, relationship with the woman totally changes him. And none of his animal friends want to be with him anymore. When his delights were fully sated, he turned his gaze to his herd. The gazelles saw Enkidu. They started to run. The beasts of the field shied away from this person. Enkidu had defiled his body so pure, his legs stood still, though his herd was in motion. Enkidu was weakened, could not run as before. But now he had reason and wide understanding. And he's like very weepy and all that. But she says, listen. She humanizes him. Yeah, right. She civilizes him. And so she says, but listen, we have a, a great thing. We can, you can come to Uruk, right? But there Gilgamesh and um, Enkidu have this big fight. Uh, once again, alpha males. And what happens is a very, it's like a homoerotic uh, story where uh, they fight to a standstill and like fall on the ground in each other's arms. Sort of like a trial in a way. Yeah, right, right. It's typical, you know, uh, uh, epic, right? And uh, and Gilgamesh is actually dreaming of uh, a great sword uh, coming to uh, Uruk. It's just very phallic, and it's, it's, it's an amazing story. And then the uh, long shot of it is they become buds. What is the motivation for, for Gilgamesh to go and say, I want to kill Humbaba? First of all, let's talk about Humbaba. Okay, Humbaba. Humbaba, for people in Uruk, Humbaba was like a demon. But for the people um, uh, who lived in the forest, he was their god. So he was created or put there by a the god. Right? To keep them out of their abode. I think it was Enlil. Enlil, he's the guy. He's the great sky god. Who loves the forest, the sacred forest, and Humbaba is there to protect it. Correct. And so what happens, you ask the motivation. Okay, so what happens is uh, um, Enkidu and Gilgamesh become lovers, and um, but they start to get, uh, especially Gilgamesh gets bored. Gilgamesh opened his mouth, saying to Enkidu, Ferocious Hambaba, let us slay him so his power is no more. In the forest of cedar where Hambaba dwells, let us praise him in his lair. So suddenly, uh, uh, Gilgamesh gets this bee in the bo his bonnet that he wants to go and uh, uh, make his name last forever once he learns he's only uh, like two-thirds god and that he's mortal. And Enkidu keeps on telling you, you don't want to go to that forest. It's like uh, you're full of dangers. Enkidu opened his mouth saying to Gilgamesh, I knew him, my friend, in the uplands. When I roamed here and there with the herd, for sixty leagues the forest is a wilderness. Who is there would venture inside it? Gilgamesh opened his mouth, saying to Enkidu, I will climb, my friend, the forest's slopes. 
Enkidu opened his mouth to speak, saying to Gilgamesh, My friend, how can we go to the forest of cedar? So to keep safe the cedars, Enlil made it his lot to terrify men. That is a journey which must not be made. That is a man who must not be looked on. He who guards the forest of cedar, his reach is wide. Humbaba, his voice is the deluge. His speech is fire, his breath is death. He hears the forest murmur at 60 leagues distance. Who is there would venture into his forest? And, uh, but, but, but Gilgamesh starts to, like, like a typical Semitic, uh, guilt trips, uh, Enkidu by saying, look, if, uh, you don't go with me, uh, cause Enkidu had been to the forest before. And he said, if you don't go with me, I'll probably die. Your best friend won't be alive. You know, you should head, right? <laughs> you know? So, uh, and all the elders, uh, tell, and this is really kind of, uh, telling of how forested this area was is, um, all the elders say, Gilgamesh, don't go to the forest. It's each way direction. It's like 10,000 leagues. But Gilgamesh, you know, he's 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 on it. So this is the heroic journey. Exactly. They're, they're going to go up and Gilgamesh wants to kill Humbaba, remove his head and cut the trees down. He declares this before they go. Yeah, but what happens is it's typical. It's like um, when the first people saw the sequoia, giant sequoia is... You know, when they got to the cedar forest, they were so awestruck that they stopped for like a, a day or two just to admire the great growth. They stood there marveling at the forest, gazing at the lofty cedars, gazing at the forest's entrance, where Humbaba came and went. There was a track. They saw the mountain of cedar, seat of gods and goddesses throne. On the face of the land, the cedar proffered its abundance. Its shade was sweet and full of delight. Thick tangled was the thorn, the forest a shrouding canopy. Cedars and gum trees all entwined left no way in. For a league on all sides, cedars sent forth saplings. Cypresses grew thick for two-thirds of a league. Cedars scabbed with rosin grew sixty cubits high. The rosin oozed forth drizzling down like rain, flowing freely for ravines to bear away. Through all the forest, a bird began to sing. Hen birds gave answer. A constant din was the noise. A solitary tree cricket set off a noisy chorus. Sing a song, making the pipe loud. A wood pigeon moans. A turtle dove calls in answer. At the call of the stork, the forest exults. At the cry of the Franklin, the forest exults amid plenty. Monkey mothers sing aloud. A youngster monkey shrieks like a band of musicians and drummers. Daily they bash out a rhythm in the presence of Humbaba. They were shocked how beautiful it was. They were. And the aroma and they had that, to pause. Uh, a pause. And, uh, and and that um, oh, ecological Gilgamesh, you know, they're listening to all the, uh, you know, um, you might say songs of the forest. But then um, oh, after a day, like Gilgamesh gives the battle cry. Yeah, what what makes him decide? Um, let's continue on. Well, let's put, the, put it this way. Their avarice um, 
or or their um, hubris oh, always uh, over uh, shadows any kind of uh, positive emotion. And, uh, you know, they've come their way with seven like weeks they've been traveling, right? And, you know, they're not going to go empty-handed. And this talks about the human, oh, um, the universality of the poem. Because we see all this repeated, like, oh, in North America, we see it repeated, you know, in the uh, giant sequoia. At first, like with the giant sequoia, people were just in awe. And then they started to get real, right? Let's get our axes. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I have all those images, like the cotillion dancing on the uh, base of a, uh, I like it called beheaded uh, giant sequoia. You know, actually, actually the, I could go on and on. But so anyway, so. Um, right. It's like this urge to conquer something. It is. Even if it's a natural object or if it's an elephant or it's a whale. It's a huge tree. You, you're you in awe of it. You love it. But they still had to, you know, cut it down. This seems to be some sort of awful universal impulse that humans have had. But so anyway, so there they are, and um, they, they, they 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 see at first the beauty, but then they see uh, the temples that they can build to uh, perpetuate their name forever and forever. So they first start cutting down some trees, and then Humbaba comes out, right? Right, because he has ears that can hear a hundred miles away. He has like fire that can oh, uh, you know strike you like you know a hundred miles away. He has a Oh, uh, breath like hurricane. But the thing is, what what really what what really pacifies him? He sees his old pal uh, Enkidu. Well, actually, he starts tossing insults to the two of them with extra vitriol for Enkidu, who has turned on him. Humbaba opened his mouth to speak, saying to Gilgamesh, "Let fools take counsel, Gilgamesh, with the rude and brutish. Why have you come here into my presence? Come, Enkidu." You spawn of fish who knew no father, hatchling of terrapin and turtle who sucked no mother's milk. In your youth I watched you, but near you I went not. Now in treachery you bring before me Gilgamesh and stand there, Enkidu, like a warlike stranger. I will slit the throat and gullet of Gilgamesh. I will feed his flesh to the birds of the forest, ravening eagle and vulture. But Gilgamesh and Enkidu engage Humbaba in ferocious battle, smiting the bedrock and breaking up the mountain. And with the assistance from the god Shamash, they end up seizing and subduing Humbaba. He actually begs for his life. And he starts to try to make, you know, like, what do they say? Uh, a, you know, a deal with the hangman. You know, if you don't, like, hang me, I'll give you this and this amount of timber. You know? But Enkidu, who's, you know, is sort of like a convert. You know, converts are more extreme than, oh, you know, the uh, regular person. Uh, Enkidu says, Gilgamesh, this guy is, like, just, like, bullshitting you, you know? you know, Just do it. Just do it. Enkidu opened his mouth to speak, saying to Gilgamesh, Do not listen, my friend, to Humbaba's words of pleading. Why should his pleading even enter your mind? If he returns to his home, we shall be as unborn. He will bind us fast in the forest of cedar, then enter the grove and put on his auras. My friend, Humbaba, who guards the forest of cedar, finish him, slay him, 
do away with his power. They kill Humbaba. Gilgamesh stabs him in the neck, and Enkidu rips out his heart and lungs. But just before he dies, he leaves them with a curse. Humbaba heard how Enkidu abused him. Humbaba lifted his head, weeping before Shamash, his tears flowing under the rays of the sun. May the pair of them not grow old. Besides Gilgamesh, his friend, none shall bury Enkidu. In victory, Gilgamesh, and presumably his men, proceed to cut down the trees in the cedar forest and send the wood down the Euphrates to Uruk to build temples, walls, and other works. And then what's beautiful about the ecological Gilgamesh is the trees all the way from uh, Iran to uh, Israel uh, start to weep because they know that this is going to happen to them someday, which it did. It's beautifully done, and and then uh, um, they start piling the uh, timber, right? And they make rafts, and it's exactly what uh, Mark Twain writes in the uh, 19th century, you know, the uh, great pines from Minnesota, you know, traveling down the Mississippi, and, you know, and Huckleberry Finn is all about that, right? The loss and destruction shocks even Enkidu. Gilgamesh went trampling through the forest to take rosin from the cedars for the table of Enlil. Enkidu opened his mouth to speak, saying to Gilgamesh, My friend, we have reduced the forest to a wasteland. How shall we answer Enlil in Nippur? In your might you slew the guardian. What was this wrath of yours that you went trampling the forest? According to John Perlin, this moral questioning of their act in defiance of the god Enlil, is the first ethical critique of the deforestation that has led to the dilemma we face today. It is one reason why the Epic of Gilgamesh is a masterpiece. Uh, when they get back to Uruk, oh, um, how are they received? Well, uh, we don't know how the people receive them, but we know that uh, Gilgamesh is parting like a frat guy with uh, all these babes. You know, he thinks he's quite the dude. You know, wowie, zowie, I'm the dude. You know, I've conquered the cedar forest. And uh, he doesn't realize that the gods are in conference about what we should do with these assholes, you know, who've ruined our place. And so what the, what they do is they, st- they, they, they decide to um, invoke Humbaba's curse. And Humbaba's curse is now that you're killing me, oh, um, one of you is going to die, and then there'll be no one to uh, mourn the other's uh, passing. And finally, they come to a uh, decision where Enkidu will be um, killed. Enkidu is chosen to die by the gods. He sees it in a dream. He dies from illness, and Gilgamesh feels the loss. For a while, he wanders the earth, pondering the meaning of his own mortality. Both Enkidu and Gilgamesh have faced the consequences of their deeds. Said the tavern keeper to him, to Gilgamesh, If you and Enkidu were the ones who slew the guardian, destroyed Humbaba, who dwelt in the forest of cedar, killed lions in the mountain passes, seized and slew the bull come down from heaven, why are your cheeks so hollow, your face so sunken, your mood so wretched, your visage so wasted? In its context, do you think Gilgamesh was a hero, or was he a transgressor, or is he some of both? 
Well, I think um, it depends on whose eyes. Like if you, um, uh, for the rulers of the areas in the Middle East for about a thousand years, they all tried to replicate and to uh, legitimize their, their, their rule uh, by repeating uh, the uh, feet of uh, Gilgamesh. And like I said before, that's really interesting because the geography of where the forest is, like, is like uh, in transition because, you know, they cut down one area, so they have to go to another area. And so they go all the way from eastern um, Iran to, you know, to Lebanon in like a couple thousand years. But it's celebrated. In my book, I have the illustrations of the uh, celebration of, uh, you know, repeating Gilgamesh's uh, foray into the forest. And what about Humbaba? Right, so he's a scary, terrible monster. In the eyes, awful. in the eyes, in the eyes of civilization. Right, but but his mission was to guard the sacred forest. In the uh, statuary of the uh, Sumerians, say, Humbaba was a demon to be conquered. But the idea of the uh, indigenous people in eastern Iran and in the eyes of the god, and this which makes the whole story so beautiful, in the eyes of the god, he was there like, um, you know, he was, he, he was the person who acted as the boundary of civilization to protect the natural beauty. Right, from civilization. So it's not all black and white, is it? Well, that's why it makes it such a great story. Yeah. If it were just black and white, it would be it would have Agreed. not lasted. It's a very nuanced story. And the thing what's most amazing about it, there's uh, um at least fifty or sixty different versions that uh were uh, created over the uh, millennia. So even from this time, the ancients understood that these forests should be protected on one hand, and right. on the other hand, they're perfect to build our temples with and to build ships and everything else. And there you have the entire story of the yin and the yang of a forest journey. There you have, that's why I say, the Gilgamesh is sort of like a, a cliff note or something like that of what's going to happen in the entire book. And that's what makes the Gilgamesh story so great is because we have never changed. So overall, that's a pretty scary ecological message. Well, yeah, well, basically... It's avarice and self-interest that guide civilization. So what does this mean for us today? How can we possibly stop this cycle that has gone on for 5,000 plus years? Or how do we at least alter the cycle in favor of protectionism? Well, if we can reflect on the stories that I present, possibly, you know, some people will clue in Especially now that we know, um, uh, we didn't know like oh, until like recently, all the amazing services that trees provide. In fact, it's an existential question, actually, um, you know, whether or not we want to survive as a species. But it's, we don't have a very good record, uh, you know, and, and my whole hope is that uh, we uh, discover a new ethos where it might be better not to do anything. I do think that there's power in storytelling and understanding ourselves. 
And that's why telling the story of Gilgamesh and all of these other stories that you include in your book is so important. Well, that's that's why that's why um, I really believe, like you say, in storytelling, st- storytelling, empirical fact. We need that, but we need to get people to understand it and feel it for action to occur. And that's why I wrote the book. Do you see hope? Hopefully it'll uh, bring a new eth- ethos where um, we see Humbaba as the hero. Yeah, we need more Humbabas. And I'm going to leave it there. I'd like to thank John Perlin for a fascinating, enjoyable discussion. That was a lot of fun. His book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization, is available now. It is gorgeous, and it comes with a QR code that links to interactive maps, timelines, a teacher's guide, and a reader's guide to deepen the experience. I'd also like to thank Martha Douglas Osmondson for her mesmerizing reading of Passages from Gilgamesh. And once again, thank you, tree lovers, for listening. I have one small ask. If you've been enjoying the show, please share the link with friends to help get the word out. Your support is so appreciated. You can also tell them that we need more Humbabas. Let them ask what that means. I'm Doug Still, and this is This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree Shadow and shade Kids down the block are selling lemonade Send them down a cool breeze, a sweet cascade Tailor-made by this old tree Sixteen hundred, you were just a seed Reaching for the sky high Waiting for a chance to take your place In the warm sunshine Here I go High above the place Where the people grow Leave my troubles on the ground Far below So I can get to know This old tree Summer sparkle In your leaves Autumn winds will bring relief. Ever do we build our households? Ever do we make our nests? Ever do brothers divide their inheritance? Ever do feuds arise in the land? Brought us the flood, the mayfly floating on the water. On the face of the sun, its countenance gazes. Then all of a sudden, nothing is there.